The sales robots have taken over, and they're decimating deals left and right, destroying them right in their tracks. On the AI for Sales podcast, our mission is to empower everyday sellers to embrace AI superpowers to build new bridges and crush quota. Dr. Joel Abon said it best in the AI for Sales book, in sales, time kills deals. In AI for Sales, AI kills time. Join our hosts as we learn from the C-suite of the world's fastest growing companies about how you can leverage AI today to transform your sales revenue engine while being the best version of you. Hey, everybody. I am Chad Burmeister, and I am your host of the AI for Sales podcast. We're here with Seth Early, um, and I'm going to say that wrong. Early, early. Early. It's early. Like early, early in the morning, there there's go. an E before the Y, which confuses people, throws them off the trail allows them to go to the wrong website, send the wrong email address and so on. So it's just a- Exactly. So let's make sure everybody gets that right on the front end. It's E-A-R-L-E-Y.com. Sure. And that's a real, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, in fact, I we we started about five minutes past and I said, if we have to reschedule for later in the day, I'm going to do that because what a cool book that you've written called The AI Powered Enterprise. And what a cool company that you've been around for 25 years, early information science. So I'm excited to dig in. And I believe that you and I are on the same wavelength mm. when we got to talk about the Iron Man suit. So Seth, welcome to the call. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Well, I like to, before we go into what we're seeing in the market today and what you're helping your customers with, over 100 large brands, I might add, um, I would like to kind of help our audience get to understand who you are. Like, how did you become who you are, right? Where'd you grow up? What was your thing when you were younger? It's a long, sordid story, but I'll give you the highlights. <clears throat> so I was born in New York. Um, I was I grew up in Waltham, Massachusetts as a teenager. So always a nice time to go from New York City to uh, uh, Waltham, Massachusetts at, in seventh grade, which of course means that you're uh, an alien as far as they're concerned and you you don't uh, have that accent. I didn't have a New York accent either. Uh, but um, <clears throat> I went to uh, university for chemistry. My undergraduate was chemistry, of all things. Uh, I'm a science geek at heart. Uh, I went to graduate school for business uh, with, uh, with uh, a marketing concentration. And uh, I started working for small <clears throat> systems integration and database management firms, doing marketing business development, and then started to uh, ease my way into technology consulting. Uh, because I found that I always had the business perspective that was often missing from the techno geeks <laughs> conversations. Uh, I got involved with something uh, called Lotus Notes back in the early 90s. And uh, they used to say Lotus did poorly what nothing else could do at all. And that was kind of the beginning of the knowledge management era. And, and of course, a lot of interesting things came from that. Uh, and again, we've been working with Fortune 1000 companies over this period of time, and we help them make their information more usable more findable, more valuable. And we've had lots of great uh, successes uh, doing that kind of stuff. Wow, that's really amazing. Um, I, I love it that you started in that. My son's in uh, computer science right now as in engineering school. So he's going to be electrical engineering, now he's computer science. Nice. And he's just got the mind for systems and process. That's great. Um, that's great. It's, it's something that a lot of people do not have. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's it's not a field that's going away. <laughs> that's for sure. Regardless yeah, exactly of the right. progress that we make with AI, you still need that human judgment. 
even in the yes, technology that, pieces. It gets easier. Well, and especially when it comes to the ethical side, I've noticed, right? Mm-hmm. It, who gets to make the final decision on certain tasks right. and functions? It just feels to me that there needs to be an ethics oversight committee, a new CEO, a chief ethics officer. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think you can get into problems with, with, uh, ex, uh, with, with ethics and bias, and that especially happens when you have black boxes and you don't know exactly how they're working. You don't know what kind of data it was trained on. And many times, if you start going uh, digging under the surface, you find that they have data sets that skew toward one group or another. And that is where we can get some challenges, especially when you start looking at algorithms to screen uh, new hires or look at resumes or you know, make personnel decisions of some sort or another. So yes, uh, bias can get in there and, and it is an important issue. And then we start getting into issues around privacy, <clears throat> security, because the more we know about people, the better we can serve them. But then there's a fine line between, you know, serving customers well and going into creepiness, <laughs> right? I didn't want that. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. So uh, three years ago, I went to C-Suite Network in New York City, mm-hmm. and you, you ask people, raise your hand if you're using AI mm-hmm. in the business. Mm-hmm. And just like you would ask someone 10 years ago, raise your hand if you're using LinkedIn, and it was like three out of a room of 100. Mm-hmm. It was a very similar kind of a hand raise that mm-hmm. I got. You know, you get a couple. Mm-hmm. Then you ask, are you using Zoom Info for data? Mm-hmm. And you get maybe 20 or 30%. And you say, oh, so you're using AI. You just don't know it. Right. And it seems to me that that's what's going on a lot now is that a lot of companies have AI embedded under the hood and the customers just don't know it. But um, talk to me a little bit about the AI driven enterprise. How did you come AI powered enterprise? How'd you come to write the book and talk to us about it? So I just want to acknowledge your point. That's a very, very good point is that AI is increasingly being baked into the things that we use. And in fact, it's been around for a very long time because search was one of the early uh, applications for machine learning and uh, building search indices. So Anytime you use a search engine, you're using AI, you're using machine learning. And we've been using... So now I can ask if you're using Google and I can get 100% of the audience to raise their hand. And you're using AI, that's right. But it is increasingly being baked in and things that we didn't call AI uh, in the old days, we are calling AI now. And now everything seems to be AI. And, you know, there was a professor uh, at MIT who once said, AI by definition doesn't work. As soon as it works, we call it something else. So word processing was an early... Uh, iteration of AI because it took human judgment and it built it into software. And that was AI. Uh, Speech recognition is AI, self-driving cars, right? But now everything is AI, right? No matter, you can't uh, uh, throw a rock and and not hit something with AI in it. But the point is that, you know, organizations are still having challenges using AI, whether it's embedded in the technology that they're already using or whether it is an explicit new initiative because of the data and the data architecture, because the data is more important than the algorithm. These things run on data. And if you don't have the data, they're not going to work. If your data is crappy, they're not going to work. If it's not the right data, it's not going to work. You know, when people were looking at Watson and the Jeopardy game, you know, they're like, oh, you just feed it everything. It just looks at everything. That's not true. Because they could, they, if they gave it the wrong information, the performance went down right? It degraded. So you have to be very careful about what you're training your AI with. And the reason I wrote the book 
is because you had a lot of organization, you had a lot of uh, of uh, books out there and, and gurus who were talking about AI at a 30,000 foot level, right? Or 100,000 foot. AI is going to be the greatest thing for humankind or AI is going to lead to Terminator and, you know, Skynet and be the worst thing for humankind. And then there are people, oh, here's how you do uh, convolution, convolutional neural networks. And here's how n-dimensional free space vectors work. And I just love saying n-dimensional free space vectors. That's my vocabulary <laughs> for a long time. But the point is that, you know, you had stuff that was at the detailed math and technology and data and data science and computer engineering level, or you had stuff that was very, very high level. I wanted to write something that was for business people. I wanted to write something that was going to help organizations understand how to build the right use cases, how to build, how to solve their problems. It's not like AI is going to magically solve some problem and eliminate a human. You have to take a very narrow piece of a process and use the AI for that process, for that piece. So it's not a matter of, uh, of replacing a human. It's not a matter of, oh, just throw all your data at it and it figures it out. And you've had vendors saying that stuff for years, right? They say, oh, you don't even need to come up with a hypothesis. It just gives it. No, that's nonsense. If people can't explain what they're doing, at least what the inputs and what the outputs are, then turn around. If they say proprietary, turn around. But the point is that there's certain things you need to look at. You need to understand your process. If you, if you don't understand your process, you can't fix a mess and you can't, you can't fix something you don't understand. You can't automate a mess and you can't automate what you don't understand. So understanding so perfect things are critical. A perfect example, a customer, this company's been around 102 years. Mm -hmm. They've never had an inside sales team. Mm -hmm. So they came to us and said, hey, can you help us stand up a team? So in four weeks time, we, we hired nine reps, put in an email technology. But this is where it comes back to the data that you're talking about. This email tech is smart enough. It has a basic layer of AI that says, if I'm going to send an email to Seth and he's already a customer, then it flags that email and it won't even really let my system make a phone call right. to you. Right. And it's awesome if Seth's flagged as a customer right. in my system. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> assume assume the data. <laughs> assume he's. Yes. Now, so yeah. what, what are your thoughts, chicken or the egg? Because it took us two to three weeks to get to the point to recognize, oh, Wait, not all your customers are tagged? Oh yeah, we use a totally different operating right. system to track all of that information. Right. Do you are you supposed to do that ahead of the launch or do you do it while you're flying the plane? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of unfortunately a lot of people do while flying the plane because what vendors want to do is they want to stand up their software, they want to make the sale. If they came in and said, "Wait a minute, you got to fix all your data first and then call us." It'd be like they would never sell anything, right? Because it just doesn't, it's just not in the nature of the beast, right? There's always going to be data challenges. There's always going to be uh, data quality issues. There's always going to be a challenge of integrating that data. And a lot of times things that might work in a proof of concept or a pilot do not scale. Why? Because you spend all this time fixing your data and manipulating it and getting it in the right shape. And data scientists spend more time being data janitors than data scientists and then you go to deployment and you say, well, wait a minute, our production data isn't all nice and clean like our pilot data was. Well, guess what? You didn't spend the time on it. And it's probably going to take you a year and a couple of million bucks to fix it. And they go, oh, no, that's uh, they say data is important. And they go, oh, it's not that important. <laughs> it's not a two million dollar problem we need to solve. Yeah, right now. but let's okay. tell you, I have to say, so, you know, uh, my one of my articles was just just selected from Harvard Business Review for their 
special topic issue on how AI is impacting work. That was a story, a case study of applied materials that saved them $50 million per year. And because they invested in the data and the architecture, they so these things are immensely powerful and profitable and make uh, you can have extremely good ROIs on this stuff, but it takes the time, the energy and the investment. And that's the challenge. How do I know if I'm a business leader, maybe I'm a vice president or I'm in charge of my IT department or whomever, right? It could be anybody in a company could see a need for AI. How do I kind of look at my shop and decide these are my top three things I need to focus on and how can I use artificial intelligence mm -hmm. to solve for those? Yeah. Or is that the wrong way to look? No, at no, that's exactly the right way. I mean, start with your business objectives, right? Don't start with AI. I like to say the first thing about AI is forget AI. <laughs> focus on the business, focus on the business process, the business outcome. Look for those places where you have friction points in your in your information movement where you have high velocity information flows and then they get stopped or you can leverage and they call them information leverage points where if you have that right information can you speed up all those downstream processes because we're trying to speed up the information metabolism of the organization we're trying to make it easier for everybody to make faster decisions and better quality decisions and allow the organization to be agile and adaptable so that they can take advantage of customer opportunities and market opportunities and, and deal with their competitive threats and so on. And so when you start doing these projects, you have to begin with what I like to call the excuse case, right? The excuse case is the case, is, is the use case that gives you justification, right? Because you can find these things that'll say, okay, this will pay us back. Now, once you have that and you start this initiative, you can find all sorts of other opportunities to leverage that core architecture that you're building. That's why you have to have a more holistic view of this stuff. So starting with those business objectives, starting with those goals, looking at the problem areas, and then identifying where you can have an intervention that's going to speed that information flow. And that, again, you know, one of the things I thought you were going to ask, how does an executive know that, that spending money on this is going to make sense, right? Because people have been burned. Oh, yeah, we have to fix this master data. Oh, here's a few million dollars in a couple of years. But it's, there's ways of doing this where you have quick wins while you're on your path to this vision, this future vision. And that, again, is where you build your excuse cases, <laughs> knock it out of the park, show value, and then continue on that path. I love that. I mean, I go back five years to when this little company called Ring Central mm. was not too little, but not not what they are today. Mm -hmm. Stock was trading around fourteen bucks before it went up to as high as four hundred, wow. and um, they were getting they had a lead flow of leads coming in that were you know you'd give them to a team of hundreds of reps, they'd make one or two calls, and then the leads would sit in MQL stacks. You want the, the Glen Gary leads, right? Yeah. Glenn Gary. And so well, all we did is said, let's make sure that leads get called in under five minutes and let's try them eight to 10 times right. each. Right. It went from an 8% conversion rate to an 18% right. on the same amount of dollars spent. Yeah. And to your point, you, then you're enabled to say, okay, let's go stand up an outbound right. team. We opened up the door to so many other projects as a result of that. Exactly. And that was a process issue. Right. You fix that process and with the same resources and tools that you had, you were able to drastically improve that outcome. And that gave you the credibility and the resources to do with all those other things.
Yes. Okay. Now we're going to go against what we just said, which is most people, you said, Hey, start from your objectives in mind. Mm -hmm. Let's, um, let's look at a few of the, like share a use case in AI. If you have an idea in in the sales department, is there, is there one you could share that was particularly uh, eye-opening for one of your customers, perhaps? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we look at is, you know, again, where is friction, where's their friction in the process? And a lot of times, you start looking at how salespeople do their jobs. And number one, it's like, how do I, who do I call? How do I prioritize? Right? So there are scoring AI based machine learning based algorithms that will score customers with a propensity or a receptivity. They're in the market or they're ready. And it can do that via lots of different signals. Those algorithms vary quite a bit, but what they can do as they can say, let's be laser focused on the top prospect. So that is a very powerful use case. Uh, HubSpot has some of those algorithms built in. Salesforce has those algorithms, but you do have to tune them, right? You do have to understand and you have to have good data. Uh, I, 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 I want to digress just a moment, but uh, let me finish the other use case, proposal development, right? How do I access the latest and greatest proposals? How do I get the stuff that I can reuse and and rather than recreate? And many times semantic search will help with that or knowledge graph search will help with that. What it does is it gives you more uh, a, a greater ability to locate exactly what you need. And that, of course, is based on information architecture. I wrote an article called There's No AI Without IA. Uh, there's no artificial intelligence without information architecture. And so you still need to have that. But I want to tell a story about data. When you think about organizations and trying to fix data, think about it. Is it the business problem or is it the IT problem? And you can say, well, wait a minute, the business is going to say, no, IT owns the data. And and imagine you're in the IT organization and you say, wait a minute, we have Salesforce. And guess what? Our salespeople are not uh, documenting their calls. They're not uh, uh, copying uh, Salesforce to, to capture their emails. They're not um, uh, classifying and tagging the customers, as you in your example that you just mentioned. How is IT going to fix that? IT can't fix that. You can't say, IT, fix my sales data. That is up to sales and the sales process and compliance. So there's great opportunity. And the other thing is, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's not great but the idea in terms of bots, right? But you can have helper bots, you can have knowledge retrieval bots, and you can have the basic FAQ bots. But what you want to do is always be able to escalate to a human. You, the worst thing to do is give people that impression of, oh, here's a bot. Oh, this bot sucks. Oh, and I can't get to a human, right? Basically, you want that bot to capture some information and pass you to a human, right? That's what you want. You don't want to try to have these things service the the, the, the customers directly. Well, and that, the, a trip site, I'm not going to call their name out just by politeness. <laughs> um, but for the longest time, it was amazing. For $20 a trip, they could do my planes, trains, and automobiles. And I've got uh, chat or phone instantaneous with a human. <laughs> and they raised a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And then they probably pulled the rug out and said, okay, now that we've got all these users, let's just throw a chat bot right, in the middle. Right. And now I chat with some three-digit acronym that doesn't know how to handle anything. Say that and I'm, I'm, ready, I'm ready to walk to the door. I'm sorry. I missed the last thing. I stepped on you. What was the last thing you said? Um, I am not ready. or I'm just ready to leave this right. company and move back to right. a more standard right. firm because the promise that right. they gave me of $20 for a human right. is now completely gone. Right. 
And that violation of that trust and that impression that they're providing to their market and to their customers is not repairable. It's not repairable. Yeah. You get that impression yeah. and you go, wow, this really sucks and I can't get to a human. And and there's all sorts of examples of really, really bad bots. They're just, they're not even using machine learning. They're not even, you know, uh, identifying intent. They're not even identifying different formats for, you know, an apostrophe before the T and don't. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. I don't understand yes. what you're saying. Yes. Okay. No. Yes. <laughs> now, I will tell you, there's a new one that you probably have not heard of. And I've heard these people speak in Florida twice now. It's called Vacodia. But what, um, the, the, what is it called? Vacodia? V-O-C-O-D-I-A. Vacodia. They've created a bot that can actually make a phone call, have a conversation with you, and in this latest rev that I just saw last week in Sarasota, handle an interruption. Wow. Just like you did so eloquently. (laughs) (laughs) So that's so interesting. You know, and, and one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that, you know, these days, these bots and virtual assistants pretty much suck. I think that's a technical term. I think it's a technical term. You can look it up. Yes. They don't work very well. They're brittle. They don't degrade gracefully. They don't, you know, but one day they'll be great. One day they will be awesome. One day they will be like talking to people. And the character in my book, Alan Perkins, uh, starts in the morning. He, he When he gets up, he starts checking in with his virtual assistants, some that work for him, some that work for his company, some that work for his vendors. And he interacts seamlessly and he has one bot talk to the other. He's able to transact his business. He's able to have efficiencies and they're seamless. That will be the future. Just like any technology. Remember PDAs? Remember Palm Pilots? (laughs) Yeah. But I still have my wife's in a drawer somewhere. But one day they're going to be excellent. What's standing between us today and then? It's the data. It's the content. It's the knowledge. So all of these things are going to get better and better, and the language models are evolving. The problem is that you still need to have a handle on your knowledge because a standard uh, generic knowledge model that understands like, I want to make a reservation or I need to cancel this or I need to look at that will not work for, say, Honeywell's knowledge or Cisco's knowledge, that deep, deep expertise when you need to get a human who has knowledge and expertise, a subject matter expert, an engineer, that's going to be the last mile of these of these bots of these tools. I love. Well, let, let's talk about that for a brief moment because there's three to five thousand people who listen to these podcasts now, mm-hmm. and if I'm one of the three thousand and I'm thinking, "Wow, this is pretty intriguing for me," what type of skill set? Because you know, there's the uber creative on one side, CEO Elon Musk type, and then you've got uber technical type of person on the other side. Mm-hmm. And Elon maybe he may be both. Mm. Uh, I don't a, know. I don't know him personally, but he seems like he yeah. might know a little oh, yeah. bit of both sides. Yeah. But what what's the type of skill set or personality that you think should be playing a role in this type of an environment? In terms of the organization, so who should own this and who should manage it or who should lead it, that type of thing? So, yeah, that's a really yeah. Great, great question. And it really depends on where in the organization you're trying to solve the problem. One of the notoriously challenging issues is knowledge. Knowledge uh, is fragmented. It's all over the place. And you have certain situations where customer support is disconnected from, uh, you know, from field service or from uh, another part of the organization that's doing outreach. And 
the, the challenge is that, you know, the customer journey is a knowledge journey, right? They come armed. They are knowledgeable. They understand what they need. They're, it's not like the old days where the salesperson was the gatekeeper of knowledge and information. Customers want to have that control. They want to have that knowledge. They need to be able to get that information from your website and from other sources, and they don't want to have to depend on a human. The human will always be needed for judgment and for connection. Machines can automate, humans connect, right? So you still need that ability to connect and to have a relationship. But we really need to look at, we need to have people who have a vision of what that future should be, have enough of a broad view of the enterprise that they understand that there's going to be different priorities and different uh, conflicts of, of metrics. For example, if you're trying to increase customer service uh, levels and you're trying to uh, improve CSAT, but another part of the organization says, well, wait a minute, call center, you have to reduce your time per incident. Those are in conflict, right? I want better customer service, but I want lower costs, uh, lower uh, uh, calls, uh, lower call time. So how do you resolve that? Somebody needs to look at this and go, okay, here's the greater good. So you need a senior enough person to make those judgments and not leave them to fiefdoms and to silos. So you need someone who can who can crash through those silos, do that cross-organizational collaboration, and have enough wherewithal to have the vision of what that future will be. We talk about these things very holistically. And again, you have to look at knowledge. You have to look at data. You have to look at content. You have to look at product information. You have to look at the customer journey. And those things are usually owned by different departments. So it starts off as a lot of silos and fragmentation. Somebody needs to be able to look at this and go, okay, let's look at the big picture. Let's look what's right for the organization and what's right for the customer. And let's make these investments and get rid of these turf wars so that we can create that seamless customer experience. The other thing they have to do is they have to look upstream in terms of the internal processes because you can't have acts of heroics upstream and expect a seamless experience with your customer. Acts of heroics don't scale. So that means that you need to have that, that internal customer experience be as good as that external customer experience. And that is a, is a very tall order because it requires that you pay attention to those internal systems and processes and make that knowledge available, make collaboration uh, uh, you know, a, a completely seamless across the organization and democratize the data and democratize the intelligence, the business intelligence. You need to have that across the organization so that you can build these types of, of forward-thinking, uh, visionary capabilities that will become the cost of doing business. The organizations that don't make the investments in, say, knowledge processes, knowledge management, knowledge architecture will be caught flat-footed and it will be existential. They, then, and I can tell stories about companies that never recovered. I can uh, give you case studies of companies that have, have, have saved hundreds of millions of dollars. But I know we're pressed on time, so I don't want to ramble on here too much. Well, and I love it. I mean, what I would kind of make sure our audience understands is that the value of bringing in a third party to help solve this problem. I look at the example I gave earlier in the voiceover IP company. Oh, yeah. We brought in a third party called Topo. They ended up being purchased, I think, by Gardner. Mm -hmm. And this was Craig Rosenberg and his mm -hmm. team. Mm -hmm. Even though I might have a lot of great ideas as a disruptor inside of the business, if I don't have them as the neutral third party that looks across okay. all of the hundreds of deployments they've done, mm -hmm. then it's just little old Chad trying to 
change from a senior manager level or a director level. But coming in with Craig Rosenberg, who, hey, we're in talks with thousands of the largest SaaS growing organizations out there. Different story. Right. And and so I would encourage people to check out your book <laughs> and your company. The book is on Amazon. It's called The AI Powered Enterprise. Harness the power of ontologies to make your business smarter, faster, and more profitable. Um, it was launched uh, very recently. That's the cover. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of AI powered books that are out there. Mm-hmm. I know because I'm one of the handful that put out an yeah. AI for sales book topic. So thank you for really fabulous. Uh, I just want another uh, recognition of one of the best AI books out there, and it, and it won the uh, Axiom Silver Medal uh, last year. So I've been very honored for that. And of course, having Harvard Business Review feature that case study was also a, a tremendous honor. Yeah, very cool. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. You're welcome back to the show anytime. I would love Thank you so much for sharing information Absolutely, today. Chad. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. We'll catch you on the next AI for Sales podcast. Seth Early, it's E-A-R-L-E-Y.com. Check it out. Hey, you made it this far in your AI for Sales journey. Want to augment your sales growth? First, leave us a review and then visit www.scalex.ai to claim your free strategy session today.